What is going on, everybody? It's me, Nicholas Willard, and this is Almost Canon. Now, you know, it is hunting season right now, um, so if you have had something weird or unusual happen to you while hunting, I want to know about it. You can send us your story, your encounter, uh, via email, which is almostcanonpod at gmail.com or you can contact us via our Facebook page at Almost Canon Podcast. Uh, you can hit us up on Instagram at Almost Canon Pod and those are probably the best ways to get a hold of us. Either way, like I said, if you have some sort of paranormal story, encounter, or mysterious happenings have happened to you, then we want to hear them. All right. And also, I figured I should add this while I'm thinking about it. Please go ahead and rate and review the show. Um, it's very important. I hate harping about this every week, blah, 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 so I try not to. But we're holding steady at 26 reviews. It's been this way for weeks now. Um, and I know you guys are out there. You know, we're getting downloads. Um... And I, I would assume if we were doing a bad job, we would be getting, you know, one-star reviews. But we're not getting any reviews. We're not getting any reviews. We're not getting any ratings. Um, so, if you're listening to this right now, pause the show. Give us a five-star rating. Leave us a review. And we will give you a shout-out in next week's episode. So, go ahead. Go ahead and do that right now. All right, for tonight's episode. Life here at Almost Adventure Studio has been hectic, to say the least. We have been to Boston Children's Hospital twice in two weeks. We got a newborn, obviously, which, you know, is not a huge deal, but it balancing all this stuff, it gets pretty wild around here sometimes. So I tried to put together an episode. I did, I had about... Mm, five hours to do some research on... I, I was thinking about doing um, demons that we know about through movies. So I recorded this whole episode, and it, it just... It was garbage. It was trash. So I'm not putting that out. <clears throat> um, but what I am going to do is on the lines of what I did uh, last week. I, I got some older, older episodes that we've done, and I've got ahead... And I've clipped out some of the, the ghost stories or the mysterious encounters that, that, that um, our guests have talked about within those shows. And I'm going to, I got three of them. I'm going to line them up. We're going to listen to them. We're going to talk about them. Um, so yeah, that will be tonight's episode. It's actually very exciting. I mean, uh, let's see. What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? We got a, uh, in a, uh, uh, Mount Everest Explorers Ghost Story. We have um, a Vermont folklorist's ghost encounter. Uh, what was the What was the third one? 
What was the third one? Oh yeah, no, I guess I guess it would be the first one. You know, it, it, it doesn't really matter. I'll put them whenever order I want to put them in. But we have a demonic encounter at an abandoned sanatorium, uh, Elmscrest. So that, that's very very exciting story. And I have looked online. I have not found very much. I have not found anything really at all about there being this demonic um, creature, being, spirit, entity thing that our guest and his friends encountered one night. So look forward to that story. Um, so yeah, let's, let's just jump right into it. And we are going to start with Nick Arduini and his demonic encounter at Elmcrest sanatorium a couple months ago you told me about a uh, i want to say it was like an abandoned theater or something and you yes had, uh, you that, something in there yes that's so that actually now we go to elmcrest so that and just to kind of set the scene so that is probably I'd say kind of the largest campus, even though it wasn't the biggest hospital of any place I've been, it was like the biggest campus. I'd say there was like at least 20 separate buildings. And this, yes, is where we had, and I'll explain the whole scenario, but this was once again, I mean, witnessed by five of us and it was in so it was kind of in probably what would have been like the rec hall of the asylum so in like the area with the auditorium upstairs there was a room where they would like project the films and there was like a number of different like storage cabinets up there and when we got up there we also actively at this time, you know, we're recording for EVPs and we had, you know, our cameras with us. And when we opened one of like the cabinets, this is, I think, the best way to describe it. It was kind of like seeing like a shadow figure kind of like dart across the room when we opened it. But then, you know, something was like, it would have been the equivalent, especially like the way we reacted, where it's like seeing something almost like, I want to say like jumping out at you for where we saw that shadow go. And like at that moment, we kind of like ran back down the stairs. And then one of my friends you know, made eye contact with something that kind of, like, scarred them for a while. Like, this was something they talked about for a while afterwards. And that night, before we even left the campus, you know, they kept seeing this, I want to say, like, creature, but they said it was kind of, like, demonic-looking Mm -hmm. And 
they saw it like numerous times. They said it was almost if it was like watching us leave. Hmm. And I mean, that was the only time ever out of anywhere that I went where not only did we see something, but to like be in like a panic where we actually ran out of somewhere. It was like that was all happening kind of like collectively. It wasn't just like one person seeing something like. Is this friend is he or she? Are they someone who. uh, Who like would make up stories like this or or was this out of the ordinary for them? It it was very out of the ordinary for them. And like I said, not just was it out of the ordinary. I remember this like very vividly. I mean, they we were standing afterwards, like on the outskirts of this campus. So like we were across the street from the campus and it was like you couldn't even get them to come towards the car because they were like literally like drawn to this and they said that they just it was like this thing was just watching them oh. and like it, it gives me chills because just being in that moment like i said it was like they were in a trance almost like you would try to shake them out of it and they were just staring and like any little thing that they said was it's like it's there like and i mean it was definitely afterwards it was something you know that was talked about for a while it's not something that like i would dismiss even though i mean at the end there it's not like everybody was seeing this thing watching them but kind of reacting to how they were and right it would be kind of extreme to think that somebody would just be doing that as a joke when you see that they were like very affected by it yeah i mean that that is scary <laughs> it is and i mean the the way i look at it it's especially like in terms of the paranormal i mean cl- Clearly not everybody. I think under the right circumstances, anybody could have an experience. But, you know, I definitely think some people are a lot more sensitive to that type of stuff. And I think sometimes for people, it takes kind of like a dramatic event to kind of awaken those senses like I've heard other people kind of describe that. And this you don't worry about that happening anywhere else? Like that would would be on my mind wherever I went. So, I will admit to you, I mean that aspect of it for me, that's it's not to say like that I try to like scare myself. But at the same time, it's almost like I try to be really aware where I would actually want to make sure that, like, that's a scenario I would want to, like, put myself in. So, like, for example, if I was going to bring, like, an 
like a Ouija board mm. to somewhere like that, you know, under the right setting, I'd be open to doing it. Oh my. But I honestly, you know, like I said, as of right now, as of late, it's more kind of been the exploring aspect for me, but I never, like I said, rule anything out because in the back of your mind, you're always kind of on alert for something like that to happen. Oh, yeah, I bet. I mean, pretty much anything to have, you know, you kind of have to be on alert in a situation like that, even if it's not paranormal related when you're in. I can I mean, I've been in a couple abandoned places, but nothing like that. But when you're in like a building like that or some sort of massive complex that's just, you know, empty, it's it's different and you're on edge, you know, so you're, you're definitely more aware of what is going on around you. There's lots of dangers throughout the building that aren't, you know, people related or paranormal related. Just the building itself is old and they can fall apart. You know, you got to watch out for that stuff. So, yeah. And, ex- and exactly. And I and that's like huge because like one of the biggest things is, you know, even just walking, like you kind of always have to have a bearing where it's like, could this floor be rotting out or if I turn a corner too quick, am I going to cut myself on like an old piece of metal or a nail? Right. right. It's like a totally different world when you're in a place like that. So, so how was that friend after weeks after? Or it... I'd say if I'm being honest, like two people, that were there and I mean I'm not saying it was because of that like on their behalf but they had no interest in going in places like that again because of that experience but they didn't like uh they weren't possessed or anything right no nothing like that Hmm. although I mean, I definitely believe that in one way or another, things like that definitely can happen, but yeah, I mean that that story sounds like it was pretty dang close. <laughs> I mean in a lot of these I've heard I've heard countless stories of these these buildings being like hotspots for for like occultists doing weird rituals or like Satanists doing weird stuff in there. And I don't know how much of that you believe in, or I don't even know how much of that I believe in, but they can, you know, if they're trying to raise a demon or whatever, and trap that demon in that building. I mean, that's not something you want to mess around with. And it sounds like you guys might've, might've gotten pretty close. Cause I looked up that, that Elmcrest uh, hospital and, uh, I guess an 11 year old boy was killed while being restrained by an employee. Yes. I mean, you got some bad, some bad juju already because of that. I mean, who knows what that uh, breathed into the, into the surroundings. And on that note, I was going to say in general, I mean, the big issue with a lot of these asylums is that especially 
you know, in, during the time period where they were being used a lot, I mean, very inhumane things were happening to the right. people staying there. So it's like there's already that negative energy from that. And, you know, sometimes people are dying naturally. In the case of Elmcrest, you know, even have a patient dying in a really, you know, negligent yeah. scenario, to say the least. Ooh, so how do you like that story, huh? A demonic shadow person following them around an abandoned uh, sanatorium, an abandoned hospital. Like, just being in an abandoned hospital in the middle of the night alone is scary enough to make me want to run out of there. I don't need some sort of of uh, evil spirit chasing me out, you know? I'm just going to run out of there just for the simple fact, you know, a mouse could run by and knock over some, you know, something and I'm I'm out of there. That's all it takes. Like I'm not I'm not going there. <laughs> you couldn't pay me enough. Uh okay. Well, maybe you could. And maybe, you know, maybe maybe I, I would go, but um after hearing stories like this, it really makes me not want to become an urban explorer, you know. And and I dove down this this urban explorer uh wormhole back when I interviewed Nick. Um I don't even know, back over the summer and it it there's these places they're they're insane these these abandoned hospitals and hotels and corporate headquarters and factories you know like just these they're all over the place it's it's fast it's actually it's truly fascinating these places are all over the place and you there is no way that these places don't have spirits in them like you see them on you know travel channel or ghost adventures or something all the time they're always going to these huge abandoned complexes and you know i guess there there is a reason for that you know these places these buildings they they have such a a deep history of of you know people working there and accidents happening people dying people who are sick people who spent their lives you know especially for these hospitals they spent their the last days weeks months years of their lives in these hospitals withering away until you know they took their last breath and i i truly honestly feel like that imprints something onto these buildings and you could honest like i really feel like you could go to go to these places and contact um you know a spirit now what that spirit is that that that's anybody's guess for Nick and his his crew there, they uh, believe it was, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to say demonic. I know I, I keep referring to it as demonic, but it was definitely evil, something. Um, and for Nick's friend there, who, who looked at it straight in the eyes, um, it did something to him almost, you know. It, the way Nick talked about it, it made it sound like it. It like hypnotized him or set him in some sort of trance and then captivated him, uh, you know, almost like he obsessed over it. 
for some time after the encounter. But but yeah, so that was Nick's story. Now, our next one is from friend of the show, Tom Pollard. He is a professional and award-winning high-altitude cinematographer. Um, he has summited Mount Everest once. He has been within the death zone multiple times. Now, the death zone is generally above 26,000 feet. I believe Mount Everest is 20... Uh, let's see here. I want to say 28,000 feet. 29,032 feet. That is the the um, the absolute height of Mount Everest. 29,000 feet. That's higher than commercial airliners fly. You know, we all, you always hear 27,000 feet. Well, um, imagine climbing a mountain that's 29,000 feet tall. Like, <laughs> and like I said, the death zone is anything above 26,000 feet. And, and once you reach that area, the death zone, you only have so many hours until your body literally just dies. Like, you are dying the moment you step into the death zone, which is why it's called the death zone. Um, so, yeah, our, our next story from Tom Pollard, a mountaineer, professional cin cinematographer, and he had a pretty wild encounter while on Mount Everest and another one while that... An that I believe to be paranormal, uh, while he was training for uh, an expedition in 2019. Um, and he was training back here in the States. So let's bring on Tom Pollard's story and hear what he has to say. Has anything weird ever happened to you while you're out there? Maybe it's something you can't explain. I know a lot of times uh, these adventurers who go to really extreme places, they something called the third man factor, mm -hmm. where they feel someone with them. I think maybe even sometimes they see someone and they always seem to help them along in some way, push them yeah. further you know, than they thought they yes. could go. Has oh, anything yeah. like that ever happened to you? Or Yeah, yeah. Um... So in 1999, I had told you that I went back up to the body of George Mallory with Andy Politz on May 16th. On May 1st, when the body was originally discovered, I set out with the team and filmed them. And then, you know, we went up and got, you know, well into 26 plus thousand feet and my oxygen apparatus malfunctioned. So I couldn't get it to work. And I was the only guy of the six without a radio. Oh, man. So I couldn't go like, hey, you know, get down here and help me right. out, whatever. I was like, oh, my God. So, and I couldn't see, they, they were all like fanned out. I didn't know where anybody was. And so when I left for the expedition at the time, my son was 15 months old. I was a real sentimental bastard. I just remember leaning over his crib saying, I promise, little buddy, I'm not going to die. I'm going to come home and I'm going to see you and I'm not going to do anything stupid. I'm not going to let ambition kill me. I'll be back. I kind of this promise to this little, you know, like 15, I thought kid as if he knew, but I knew, right? Right. So 
my oxygen apparatus malfunctions. I take the pack off. I'm trying to fix it. Couldn't do it. Then I started, and we this is our first rotation up into the death zone. So we were really tapped and you needed the oxygen. I did at least. Um, they were all on it. And um, so I hiked for about 10 minutes without it. And man, I was like, whoa, oh my God. I was like, I, I was, couldn't keep up. I thought I'd probably kill myself if I keep going. So I had this, I had a fit. I was really angry. I was like, God damn. I took my ice axe and I threw it down and I wasn't clipped into any ropes. And I was like, and I was so angry. I kind of just threw my, it was like having a, just some little pity fit, you know, and I stumbled and slid and it was steep, you know, mm. and I'm reaching out and there was this old rope from a previous expedition, all this frayed rope. And I grabbed the rope just instinctively and it stopped me. And I was like, I looked down. I thought, good thing I grabbed the rope. Um, and I looked up and about 20, 15 feet to my right, I saw in the time it was real to me. I saw my son. He was, you know, kind of walking toward me, like, you know, coming at, coming for me. And I stood up to grab him. And it was, I, when I stood up and put my arms out, I thought, it, then my senses came to me. And I thought, it's time to go now. I'm seeing, I just saw my son. And um, so I turned around and went down instead of going up. And, you know, within an hour, the body of Mallory was found. Um, so, that was an apparition to me and it was a sign it was very helpful to me mm. and i don't know how it happened i don't know if it was a gift from some higher power or something like that and then in 2019 now you can imagine so we find the body of george mallory in 1999 i went 20 years thinking 20 years thinking every day many many times about george mallory but wondering what happened to sandy irvin this 20 two-year-old kid at the beginning of the expedition turned 23 and I always felt really sad for him just this like like he was trapped up there like I always felt like Mallory his soul flew away I just felt like he was at peace like I'm out of here I felt like Sandy was trapped right and I felt like he's still cold on the mountain and this is just yep. a vision I'd always had I think I felt like like some connection to him so I would train before the 2019 expedition, I would train and hike into this area called Tuckerman's Ravine and Huntington oh, yeah. on Mount Washington, very well-known trail, but nobody was on it. Cause I'd train first thing in the morning, midweek and get, and just haul ass up there. And there was this one corner, this is really grizzled old tree that I would call, I used to call it Hobbit corner. Cause it's like, it kind of feels like hobbits would live in there. It was just this beautiful place and every time i get to hobbit corner i would i swear i hear somebody walking behind me and breathing and i turn around and i go oh, shit man what the hell and i and it would happen almost every time that i would go there and like i am hearing something and after a while i talking to my wife about it and just telling her and she was like, maybe it's Sandy Irvin. Maybe he wants you to set his soul free on Everest. And it just, it pulled, 
it just worked for me. And now it's a story. I didn't see anything, but I heard. And when I went to Everest, I kept that image really bright in my mind during that time with the intent of like communicating, knowing his body is up there somewhere and to set him free, even if I didn't see him. And so that was really my ultimate goal. Now, very kind of psychic and I guess spiritual, maybe not spiritual, but kind of otherworldly, not a physical thing. And um, so I, when I got back, I went back to Hobbit Corner and never heard, haven't heard the, oh, the man. footsteps ever since. So I don't know. I'm thinking Sandy's free. I think That's Sandy's awesome. Free. That's yeah. So story. yeah, those are my two little ghost stories, not ghosts, but presence. All right. Now, before we get into our last story here, I just want to say that Tom is such a good storyteller. Like it, it doesn't matter what he's talking about. It's just once he starts talking, it's just captivating. Um, he's, he's, he's having a rough time on the mountain. Right. Um, and he's about to give up, like literally give up. And he sees his son, 26,000 feet plus, up the side of this mountain, you know, which pushes him along. Now that, what is that? What is that? Is that third man factor? Um, you know, what? what's causing whatever part of his brain to produce that image, to produce that image, like, that it's fascinating, it's mysterious. Maybe it is paranormal. I mean, there are there are probably dozens by now of of people who have died on the mountain, and and maybe one of those spirits took the form of somebody Tom knew, his son obviously, to motivate him, you know, to keep going. Who knows? It's a it's a question that we'll never get answers to, but I love that story. Just like the story of him training and hearing somebody hiking with him. Now, what's with that? I don't know. Maybe he was just hearing an echo, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe it was the, the spirit of Sandy Irvine. I mean, Thomas spent a lot of energy into... Uh, solving and and I, I i put that you know in air quotes because I, I don't i don't know if that's necessarily what he would call it but solving the the george mallory and and sandy irvine mystery so maybe maybe it was sandy's spirit alongside tom while he was training but um you know that's another question we'll never we'll never get answers for uh still a good story um he's just he's such a good storyteller like I would push anybody who finds Tom to be interesting to visit his podcast called The Happiness Quotient. He's got a, a YouTube uh, channel pretty much dedicated to, you know, Mount Everest and what's going on up there and the Mount Everest mystery, which, you know, uh, people who know what that is uh, know what it is, obviously, and the people who don't, it it's... It's, you know, this mystery of, of George Mallory and Sandy Irvine, who uh, back in like the 20s, like 1924, were so close to summoning 
uh, Mount Everest for the first time, they were within, they could see the summit, um, and they, they went for it, and nobody ever saw them again. Now, the mystery is, did they make the summit that time? Did they not make the summit? George Mallory's body was discovered by um, a team that Tom was a part of in 99, but Sandy Irvine's body has still not been found. Officially, uh, some people, like me, believe that the Chinese discovered his body in the, maybe the late 60s, uh, early to mid-70s. I, I totally believe that is what happened, but um, they have buried it, threw it, away, threw it away, we'll never know, you know. So, so if, you, if you find that interesting, please go visit Tom's podcast and his Facebook page uh, and tell him I sent you. So, so that was Tom Pollard and his incredible, incredible stories. Uh, and we'll get on to our last one here. Now, for those of you who live here in New England, and especially for those of you who live here in Vermont, you will know the name Joseph Citro. And if you're in the, the paranormal circle and you're not from New England or Vermont, you might actually even know who Joseph Citro is uh, just from his many, many books that deal with the paranormal. Uh, but for those of you who don't know who he is, he is an, uh, a Vermont author. He is a folklorist. He has spent his professional career collecting, you know, traveling New England, traveling Vermont, collecting these, these folklore stories, um, and, and sharing them with the rest of us. So, I have, I interviewed him uh, back in the spring, I believe, and he shared with us a personal story of his from a time he spent the night in a uh, supposedly haunted hotel here in Vermont, in Chester, Vermont. Um, so, without further ado, let's jump into... Joseph Citro's ghost encounter. The the chest the inn in Chester, the Fullerton, yep. has lo long been believed to be haunted. Did mm -hmm. you know that? Yeah, I I, I found that out from you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because when we were kids, we heard about it all the time. You know, we and we walked by there every day, and we knew people that owned the inn, and so we you know that those stories were pretty pretty alive in our imaginations. Later, after I after I started publishing books, I uh, had the chance to stay overnight in the inn once, right. um, all by myself. And um, the inn was closed for a couple of weeks between I don't know leaf leaf peeping season and ski season or something like that. And everybody went on vacation except I was in town doing a reading, and they let me stay there. And I was all by myself in the building, and I had brought my ghost hunting stuff you know i had a, a camera and a compass and a tape recorder and i don't know um a shotgun and <laughs> and um it was about about midnight and i started hearing weird noises up above me and i knew no i was no one else was in the inn the, the owner wasn't there nobody was there just me and whatever was making that noise up above my room 
and it occurred to me there could be some of my friends because I grew up there, you know, and they may, maybe right. they come in and to spook me. But it was middle of the week. We were all adults. My the the friend who was most likely to do something like that would worked in Brattleboro, so he'd be getting up early the next morning to drive to Brattleboro. He's not going to be screwing around trying to scare me. And I got really scared. Um, I, I didn't think I would. I mean, I had my ghost hunting stuff and I was all ready to go out and find a ghost, you know, and and, and I, I, I got really scared and I, I did stay until morning. And after a while, the noises quieted down. What it sounded like was somebody pushing heavy cartons or trunks or something like that across a, a kind of a gritty wooden floor, if you can imagine that. Anyway, the next morning, um, a woman that worked for the inn came to let me out, you know, to check me out, make sure I, and I, I told her, I said, I, I, no, about an hour, for about an hour or so, I was hearing intermittent noises up above here, well, you know, what, what could that be? And, and she said, I don't know, let's go up and have a look. So I, I followed her, up, her upstairs and there was nothing over the room where I'd been staying. A hallway opened into a tiny linen closet, and in that linen closet, there was a, a, a tiny door that was about three feet tall. I said, what's in there? And she said, I don't know. Let's have a look. So she opened this little door, and we both peered in, and it was an unfinished attic with wide wooden planks on the floor and strewn all over the place were these, these cardboard boxes full of stuff like old ledgers from the from the inn and 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 cast off dishes that they probably used at one time as serving dishes and i can't even remember books and other stuff but they're all sort of sp spread helter skelter around the floor so they could have been moving but then the question is what was moving them so anyway that that was really spooky and that happened to me and i have no idea what to this day, I can't explain what, what was causing those noises. All right. Now, that was Joseph Citro. Um, and he, he is also another one of those. Like, him and Tom, uh, they're, they're, like, gifted with this innate ability to just talk. And, <laughs> like, that is something that I clearly don't have. I, I go back here, I, I go into these episodes, and I'm just like editing out all these ums and uhs and uh and uhs. Like, it's just, I, I, I can't do it. And I could just listen to them for forever, you know, and just talk and tell these, these stories now. Um, so, I, I know of this Fullerton Inn. I obviously lived in Chester for a very long time. Um, I, I grew up in a little village called Lower Bartonsville. It was five minutes away from Chester. Uh, so I know of this inn. I have heard the story that it's haunted. Um, I had always thought that it was like a single room that was haunted because there had been a... I don't, I don't even know where I where I heard this from, but I heard that there was a fire and someone had died in this, you know, hotel room. Uh, but, but, you know, I don't know if that's the actual story. Uh, however, listening... To Joseph Citro tell his you know ghost encounter from the Fullerton Inn um, it it it's another one of those fascinating uh, ghost stories you know he he's he's um, 
he's very credible in my eyes, even though he does make a living, you know, writing these ghost stories and selling them. However, he is very skeptical in nature, um, and he doesn't, you know, he, he, like, I remember there's this famous, um, cryptid creature here in Vermont, the Pigman of Northfield, and you, you, you see this, this, you know, cryptid creature, the Pigman, you see him on all these, you know, he's, he's on, like, a couple travel channels, you know, specials, and everybody, you know, all these books, different books, and different podcasts talk about him, and everything, and this is a, this is a creature that, that, uh, Joseph Citro, uh, had originally reported on, you know, I, I don't, I don't know when the exact year was, but I remember him telling me that, you know, he was at this, this reading, and this guy stood up and kind of told him this story of the pig man, had all these details, and then Joe, Joseph Citro went to, like, you know, investigate it, dig into these details this man had shared with him, and, and they were all false. Everything this guy had told him, there was, there was no corroborating evidence corroborating corroborating evidence um so i i I remember him saying something about how the the original you know whatever happened to this person they had filed a police report and like and like um some officers had shot at it or 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 this dude had shot at it or or some something like that and and there had been a police report written up about this um and when Joseph went to, you know, find that police report, it wasn't there. None of the, the police officers um, at the station had ever heard of heard of this happening. You know, none of the, uh, and, and it might have it been a sheriff's department. But e- either way, none of these, these officers had heard um, anything of this. And, you know, so he, he kept going down the line and every, every, Every instance, he he couldn't find anything to back this story up, and and he originally, you know, he he kind of came to the f- figure out that this guy pretty much had just made up this story. But nobody wants to hear that part. They all want to hear the part about the monster attacking these kids and people and and eating garbage and living in the woods, you know, somewhere in in, in the devil's washbowl. Um, so, you know, I kind of I kind of lost where I was going with this. But um, even though Joseph wrote this story, you know, he doesn't necessarily believe it. He 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 just wants to share it. So he, you know, and, and he does that with most of his stories. He just wants to share these stories. These are these these are stories that I know there are some people out there who say they're not important, you know. Um, and I'm not going to mention any names, but there is one person who who instantly comes to mind. Um, a certain somebody who who works at a a certain local uh, historical society, but anyway, you know these these stories are important. They're they're almost, you know, the pigman has become uh, a Vermont mascot. You know, it's not as popular as Champ, but it's getting there. Like there, I'm telling you, there are dozens of podcasts out there on the pigman of Northfield and the Devil's Washbowl. So, I guess what I'm trying to get at is while Joseph Citro reports all these stories because he believes uh that they need to be shared, which they do, 
Um, he doesn't necessarily believe them all, and he'll tell you this. He'll tell you, if you ask him, that he doesn't believe, um, you know, all these stories are true, which is fine. You know, I don't believe all these stories are true. I don't think anybody believes all these stories are true. However, there are some that are true, like Joseph Citro's um, encounter in the Fulton Inn. He has no explanation for it. And the fact that the next morning they, him and a, uh, an inn staff went to the area where he had heard the sounds and saw that there had been boxes up in that little attic space that had looked to be moved around um, adds that much more credence to his story. Like, it's not like he heard something and then, you know, never never went to investigate it and then pass it off as as a ghost. Like, he went and investigated where the sounds were coming from and, you know, like, he's, I, believe, I believe he said in the story that it couldn't have been, you know, a mouse moving these boxes around. It had to have been something that was able to push something, you know, that was, that was very heavy. So it, I definitely feel like there is some good evidence behind that story and that Joseph Citro is, is a credible witness. Um, but yeah, so that was pretty much all I had uh, for this week's episode. You know, I, I know this October is not turning out the way I had planned it to go. You know, I, I really wanted to get into some real creepy, real scary stories um, for this this month of October. Uh, but it, it, you know, life rarely turns out the way we plan. And I had, like I had said earlier, you know, I had been to Boston Children's Hospital twice in two weeks. Once for oh, oh, an entire week stay. And, you know, we just got back a little while ago being there you know I, I slept like four hours in the past day or so so um but I still wanted to cobble this together I wanted I wanted to get something out there um I just I hate when people are like you know oh I'm so busy I'm sorry but I didn't have time to do anything blah blah, blah. You, you know like I I I found time to do this because I wanted to I wanted you guys to have something um, from Almost Canon that you can listen to. Uh, so yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Those are three more stories that I had pulled from older episodes. You can go back. You can find these episodes. They are episode 31, Vermont's Paranormal Wonders with Joseph Citro. Uh, episode 33, Mystery at the Top of the World with Tom Pollard. And episode 35, Urban Exploration with East Coast Urbex. And that would be Nick Aldoweeny's Elmcrest Encounter. So, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was kind of a short one. Almost a full 50 minutes, you know, uh, which, which I guess isn't bad. Some people like the shorter episodes. Personally, I like a podcast that's three to five hours long, you know, I'm, I'm one of those psychos that, that I'll just listen to a five hour podcast. Um, but, but that's all right. You know, 50 minutes, a little over 50 minutes. It's perfect, perfect amount of time for you to dig into some of these spooky stories. 
you know, right before Halloween. So I hope you'd enjoyed it. And they definitely sounded almost canon to me. Thank you.